Um, as we prepare to look at God's holy word from Nehemiah 10, um, remember that this is not the words of men. This is the word of God as given by the Holy Spirit to um, Nehemiah to write down a record of history, but also a record of how we are to live in this life. So as we turn to Nehemiah 10, let's stand and give honor to God's holy word. Nehemiah chapter 10, starting in verse 32. This passage is a continuation of the written covenant agreement that they have. So we'll look at Nehemiah 10, 32, and this covenant that they made before God. We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the service of the house of our God, for the showbread, for the continual grain offering, for the continual burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moon, for the appointed times, for the holy things, and for the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and all the work of the house of our God. Likewise, we cast lots for the, for the supply of wood among the priests, the Levites, and the people, so that they might bring it to the house of our God, according to our fathers' households, at fixed times annually, to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as is written in the law, and that they might bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree to the house of the Lord annually, and to bring to the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle and the firstborn of our herds and our flocks, as it is written in the law, for the priests who are ministering in the house of our God. We will also bring the first of our dough, our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the new wine and the oil, to the priests at the chambers of the house of our God, and the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in all the rural towns, the priests, The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of uh, the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the sons of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, the new wine and the oil to the chambers. There are the utensils of the sanctuary, the priests who are ministering, the gatekeepers and the singers. Thus, we will not neglect the house of our God. Let's pray together. Our beloved Lord, help us to honor you that we would not neglect the house, um, house of worship, the place of worship that you have given us that we would not neglect the ministry of the church, that we would receive your word and that you would encourage us by your word, that you would direct us by your word to live in a way that is pleasing in your sight. And help us, we pray, even in this text, to see and to receive the indescribable gift that you have first given unto us through Jesus our Lord, that wonderful gift that you have given of his perfect life and sacrifice for our sakes. For we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please be seated.
I'm not a big fan of preachers riding hobby horses. Um, but before I explain what I mean, I might want to talk to the kids a little bit about what in the world is a hobby horse in the first place. And actually, I learned something a little bit. I kind of wondered, how did we ever get this saying or this idiom, we call it an idiom or saying in, in the English language, of when someone rides a hobby horse. What do they mean by that? Well, a, a hobby was a special horse that was a perfect size for riding. It was like a pony or it was a medium-sized horse. It wasn't like riding one of these big draft horses or a, um, a, a mule that's used for pulling a, um, a plow or a wagon. They, they were too big and uncomfortable for a person to sit on the back of that horse and ride. But a hobby was a perfect, ideal horse for prancing around, riding around. That's where the name hobby uh, came in. But a hobby horse uh, was known also as something that's been practiced since the 1500s. People would wear a little outfit. And if you've seen some kind of funny movies, I think Monty Python had them, where they were wearing outfits that looked like they were knight and they were nice in armor with a horse around them, but it wasn't really a horse. It was like a, a little prop to make them look like a little... A little uh, costume of a man riding a horse, right? And uh, the, the, the weird thing was that it, that horse only had two legs rather than four legs, and the legs were in the middle and rather than four legs. Now, there are people wearing outfits where it's two individuals, so you got four legs there um, riding around in an outfit looking like a horse. But, so the hobby horse was actually the outfit. People, people pretending like on, to be a knight riding around in a, with a horse around them that was fake. That was a hobby horse. It's also become to known more modernly as a, as a toy people uh, get for their kids. Not very popular anymore, but basically it's like a broomstick with a horse head. And the kids grab it and they run around the house pretending they're riding a horse. That's called a hobby horse as well. So when a preacher rides a hobby horse, maybe you've got some strange imagery now to think of the preacher when he's riding his hobby horse. Uh, and the imagery is not very good, is it? To ride one's hobby horse is to, the saying goes, is to talk incessantly or to complain about a topic that is of an excessive interest to you. In other words, if every time I get up here I, I say the same stuff over and over again, something that I'm really interested in rather than coming from the text, then that would be riding a hobby horse. Now every preacher has his interests and his favorite doctrines and that can't be helped. However, we need to find ways to rein that in, right? Like a rein the horse in. Um, restrict the use of a preacher riding hobby horses. Now, one of the best things that we could do as a church to not ride a hobby horse is that we have this history in the Reformed, well, really in the Protestant tradition, but especially in the Reformed Protestant tradition, of preaching through books of the Bible. So when a, when a doctrine comes up, when a teaching comes up, it's not because the preacher wants to harp on that. He lets the, the, the going through of the entire book direct what is going to be taught. Well, what's going to be taught tomorrow, what's going to be taught next Sunday, is going to be dictated about what's in the next passage. So that way it prevents uh, the preacher from um, riding the hobby horse, but it also sometimes causes us to preach on things that we would normally maybe not feel comfortable with preaching, or maybe even things as a congregation we might not feel comfortable in hearing about. And in God's providence, today is a text about tithes and offerings. 
And uh, if you had to say, Kevin, what would you like to preach on? Um, it's probably not my favorite thing to preach on, but it's what's in the text uh, that follows in today's uh, text. Now, why all this focus about giving in, in today's text in the first place? Um, verses 13 to the end of the chapter is all about this giving of tithes and offerings. Why all this focus of giving? The source or the origin of their giving was out of thanksgiving. They were thankful for what God did for them. God delivered them from reproach of their enemies. They were in a, an unsafe way. They had a city whose walls were broken down in many places. They had their gates burned with fire. And God gave them the gift of a man who was a both governor and wall builder named Nehemiah, who directed and led the people in making the repairs and giving them security. And that wall was rebuilt in a very short time, and even the enemies surrounding them realized that, that the work of getting that wall rebuilt was a work that was enabled by God himself to help the people. So they were rejoicing. They worshipped. They had worship services. They read lots of scripture. They confessed their sin. They made a covenant with the Lord um, to renew new obedience before the Lord. And here we have part of this covenant renewal is that they're obliging themselves, the language there is that they're making an obligation of themselves to follow giving of tithes and offerings. So as we look at today's text, the main focus of today's text is that God calls you, God calls each of you to give to the work of the ministry. God calls each of you to give to the work of the ministry. We'll look at this in three main points. We'll see first various types of giving. We'll look at secondly expired or finished giving that's no longer applicable. So expired giving and continued giving, giving that continues on or should continue on. And then we'll look at, uh, thirdly, the motivation of giving. Let's look at this first main point, various types of giving here. Now, according to these many verses that we've read in, in today's text, uh, the first mention of giving is in shekels, that's money, and it was all for the work of the house of our God, verses 32 to 33. In other areas of giving, there was giving of wood for the altar, there was giving of first fruits of the ground and of every tree, um, giving of firstborn of the herds and the flocks, and even giving of their sons. We'll look at that a little bit more later. Uh, included, uh, they even gave of their dough as part of giving of, the, of their grain. Uh, they gave oil and wine. Now, what do we take from this message uh, or these things? Uh, are we going to bring a bunch of produce and all that sort of stuff and try to bring it next Lord's Day? I don't think it'll all fit in the collection plate, um, especially if somebody's bringing animals to church. Now, much of the nature of giving in the Old Testament was due to it being a very agricultural society. People, people traded not only in money, but they traded in goods and, and materials and, and livestock. Now, our church does have um, at first I was going to say our church doesn't have storehouses, but actually we do have a storage shed. But I don't think that the deacons would rather us bring a bunch of grain and animals and stuff like that and try to keep them on the church property. Um, now, but a real, to be serious, there is a practical application in this. For young people, and I remember this as a college student, you might say to yourself, you know, I love my church and I long to give 
but you know, I'm living on college loans and scholarships and I'm not really making anything. All I'm doing is going to school. What can I give? Well, you can't give anything because you, your job or your occupation, um, you can't really give money because you don't really have a job, right? And you don't really have much of an increase. You're just living off of scholarships and loans and all that. And you might say, well, I can't give anything. Well, today's text shows that what they gave was not just goods, was not just livestock, was not just shekels, money. They gave of themselves in service. They had those who had to go out and gather wood. Uh, they had to split that wood. They had to uh, cut that wood and gather it and deliver that wood. So, in a sense, you know, there's something that we can give that's in the area of service. Um, thank Thanks be to God that we had Ethan here to help and to give help in giving a service to the church and playing the piano this morning because we were in a, a tight fix. There are things that maybe we should even ask our deacons. Well, Deacon Brenner, Deacon John, is there something I can do to help? Maybe we could find ways that we can help around the church. So again, you don't have to just give money. You can give of yourself in serving and honestly, I like working with both deacons. I think I like working with both deacons, even out doing outdoor work. And uh, it's, it's a way to build a relationship with your deacons as well, isn't it? Now let's look secondly at areas of giving that have been expired and those areas that have continued on. Now, there are some areas of giving here that has expired or is no longer required because it's tied closely to what is called the ceremonial law. That's the law of the sacrifices, of the offerings. Now, we don't necessarily need to be gathering wood to give to this church because we don't burn offerings anymore. We don't have a burning altar anywhere around here because Jesus is the one who died on the cross as the final, perfect, sinless Lamb of God. Therefore, we don't need any kind of blood sacrifices or burnt offerings any longer because Jesus is the final, ultimate sacrifice and we are to put our faith in Him. Now, but after the cross, um, if someone wants to go and burn offerings to, uh, to, in their worship, that would be a blasphemy. It would be an offense to Christ, an offense to the triune God, for us to still go on and do that. Now, notice there was the giving of grain, there was the giving of oil, wine, animals. Those are all things that were to be burnt on the altar, except the only one I know of, I think, was that the wine was to be poured out before the Lord. I don't know where it was poured out, but it was to be poured out to the Lord, before the Lord. But everything else was to be burned up on the altar. We don't burn up offerings anymore, therefore, um, and we don't bring those animals for that purpose as well. Now, giving of... The firstborn. It says that they gave their firstborn. What did they give their firstborn for? Were they to be sacrificed? No. They were be, to be redeemed. There are other passages of Scripture that talk about that they were to be redeemed with money. And there was a set uh, price that the priest would give and that you would give a certain amount of money and you would redeem your firstborn that was given unto the Lord. For all these reasons... There's not really any application of us gathering together, giving of the firsts, the first fruits of the ground, and the firstborns, uh, of the firstborn of our animals or our children, 
because that was all tied together with the ceremonial law. So does it mean that there's no longer any application whatsoever of this the first fruits type language? As uh, many of you are probably familiar with a famous Christian um, uh, financial advisor named Dave Ramsey, and I think he does rightly apply some of this language of first fruits. In other words, we don't have physical first fruits that we offer before the Lord, but he says there's a principle behind the first fruits. He says the first fruits is just a biblical way of saying that we should give first uh, to God before you do anything else with your money, give to God first. And I think that's, that's nice. You, you take a spiritual principle from these Old Testament passages. So, again, the first fruits, the, uh, the, the first of the grain, the first of livestock, all that stuff is tied to the ceremonial law. What about tithes and offerings? Um, there are still applications in Holy Scripture that we are to give tithes and offerings to the Lord. A tithe is actually also a tenth. Look at verse 37. Um, verse 37 says, They said that we will give the tithe of our ground to the Levites. For the Levites are they who receive the tithes in the, in the rural towns. So again here is a giving of the tenth. A tenth of one's increase. Malachi 3, 8 says that it is to rob God by not giving tithes and offerings. In other words, it's a breaking of the Eighth Commandment. I knew of a minister once who, in a strange fashion, interpreted from the Old Testament that he believed that the gospel minister was not required to tithe. Now, I don't know where he got that interpretation from exactly, but I don't think it was today's text. Because notice in today's text that the clergy here gave a tithe as, as well. Not just the people, but the clergy gave a tithe as well. Uh, look at verse 38. It says, The priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tenth of the tithes to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. Uh, multiple scholars on this text are saying here that the Levites had to give a tenth of the tithe. You could say it was a tithe of the tithe. So they as a, received a tenth from all the people of the land, but they themselves had to give a tenth of the tenth, a tithe of the tithe. Uh, one of my professors in seminary remarked on this about ministers being required to give. He says, ministers ought to be an example in all areas of godliness. And how could you not have them be an, area, an example of godliness in giving unto the Lord? So a minister, yes, should be faithful in giving tithes and offerings to the Lord. But why do we give in the first place? What's the motivation? Look at verse 32 at the end of the text. It says, oh, well, it's at the beginning of the text, actually. Verse 32 at the beginning of the text says, We also placed ourselves under obligation to contribute. So they made the, this vow, but why were they motivated to make this vow? Uh, they were doing so in, in this making a covenant before the Lord, but they were making this obligation because they, they were convinced, they were convicted that this was something taught in the law of God. Their motivation was to keep 
uh, not only God's law in this area of the, bringing the wood together, but it says in all things, I believe, it was trying to do as it is, as it is written in the law, verse 34. They all had this motivation to do as it was written in the law. And again, the, the motivation at the end of the chapter, verse 39. They said that we are giving as a commitment. Why? So what we will not neglect the house of our God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Later on in, uh, in Nehemiah, there's a case of Levites not being able to support their families. And instead of working in the church, they had to go work in the fields to support their families. And then the, 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 the service of the house of the Lord got neglected. Well, that can happen if people neglect the, the house of the Lord. And that's what happened. Um, we'll, we'll look at that at a, at a future time. But as a, I know this is still yet for a future sermon, but I want us to turn to Nehemiah 12.44. And this is a, actually one of my favorite motivations in the, in the, uh, the whole of Scripture for, for giving unto the Lord. 12.44. It says, On that day, men were also appointed over the chambers for the stores, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes, to gather into them from the fields of the cities the portions required by the law. Therefore, again, law-keeping is why they're motivated. Uh, they did so for the priests and Levites. Now, here's the reason. Here's their motivation. It's beautiful. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and Levites who served. They had a joy over the worship of the church. And they loved the priests and Levites who served and facilitated their worship. Because they were thankful that God offered, allowed them to make sacrifices for the forgiveness of their sins. And that that was something beautiful to them. For they loved the service of the priests. They rejoiced over the priests and Levites. Paul, in a similar fashion, gives us a beautiful motivation in the New Testament as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Turn to 2 Corinthians 9. Second Corinthians 9, starting at verse uh, 6. Paul says this, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Give out of joy. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that Always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You see, God blesses you when you give. As it is written, He scatters abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, a blessing for giving. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, 
which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Again, there's thanksgiving as the motivation of giving. Um, lastly, we'll look at um, um, we'll look at verse fifteen. Thanks be to God. What are you thankful for? Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. What's that? Jesus. The indescribable gift, the first ultimate motivation for us to give is thanksgiving to God for the indescribable gift. Why do we give? Because God gave unto us His best. God gave us His beloved Son, Jesus Christ. He gave His only begotten Son to suffer and die for sinners such as us, to be raised from the dead, to be exalted to His right hand, that you have a great high priest who never sleeps nor slumbers, that you can always go to Him knowing that God hears your prayers through Jesus Christ. It's based upon this indescribable gift out of thanksgiving for that. That is why we give. Now before you think more about your giving, what about your receiving? Have you received this indescribable gift through Jesus our Lord? If you have not, confess your sins, that Jesus is both Lord and Savior, that He has died for your sins, that He has lived so that you might one day live and have eternal life forever. If you do not accept and receive this gift, you shall perish. Repent and believe and trust in God and have this motivation to receive this indescribable gift. God again calls you to give to the work of the ministry. Again, it's not just money. There's other ways to give as well. There's giving of yourselves. But also notice that not all the giving of the Old Testament is to continue on. We don't give of animals to be burnt on altars because we don't burn altars any, on altars anymore because Jesus is that perfect final Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world if we put our faith in Him. But also there's motivation in giving. Yes, we should give our tithes to God because the Word commands us. Yes, we should have a desire not to see the house of the Lord neglected. But ultimately we give because God first gave to us His indescribable gift. And that's why we give. And let's rejoice over the work of the church, especially praying that God would give this indescribable gift to others, that God would use the gifts of tithes and offerings for the preaching of the gospel, for the furtherance and the spread of His kingdom here on the earth. Now, this was not planned. This just happened to be where I'm preaching through. But keep in mind... Um, this is an introduction to what's going on starting next Sunday. We'll be handing out pamphlets concerning various areas of the thank offering. And that's going to be for the whole month of uh, November, well, the next Sunday, and also the whole month of November toward the end, when we collect a thank offering to give unto the Lord for the work of uh, Christian education, church planning, foreign ministries, and the work of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Let's pray together. We thank you for the indescribable gift that you have given unto us through Jesus our Lord. We thank you, O Father, that you have given 
unto us more than we can imagine, that we cannot outgive you, for you are the ultimate giver, and that you are the one who has set your love upon us. And we pray that you would give us hearts of thanksgiving. Lord, we do ask that you would bless this, your people, especially, we pray, help us to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the indescribable gift of the Holy Gospel that is only found in Jesus Christ, the only way, the truth, and the life. For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. For our closing hymn, um, let's turn to 255. 255, day by day with each passing moment, and we'll stand and sing together 255.